This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music at our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to the 24th episode of Misdirected Mark Plays. Tonight, we discuss Cortex tests and Cortex contests in your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. And I'm um, Chris, and we are Sans Old Man Logan tonight. He is now trying oh, in the missing man formation. Yeah, sad right. face. He'll be back in a couple of weeks, or in like a month, because we record these things in batches, and you won't hear, hear him, except uh, on Mr. Mark Plays. He'll be on the, the AP episodes anyway. Hang on, maybe I can channel him for a moment. <clears throat> <clears throat> Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Every time he goes that's to talk, it. and he's like, I'm nervous because I'm in front of a microphone. <clears throat> just throw him under, he won't listen to this because we just throw him under the bus. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> fine. Let's do some announcements real quick. Uh, the only announcement that I have is, can you please just tell other people about this show and the other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions? We'd greatly appreciate it. Yeah, we you know we changed stuff up a little while ago, and so you know people might be like, oh, I already, I already listened to Misdirected Mark like years ago or whatever. But now it's new shit, but kind of old shit too. Like- New and old shit mixed together. You know what? It's like that ripple, like when you get the chocolate and vanilla swirl at the ice cream place. Yeah. Like it's it's like a little new, but also like a little something you already know. Mm-hmm. And then I would get like a sugar cone because I really like sugar cones. <laughs> I prefer the waffle cone. cone. Which one? Like the darker one? Like the... The waffle cone is the one that that's just looks, looks like a oh, waffle. Oh, like the big around. waffle yeah. cone. Yeah, yeah. No, I like. Yeah, yeah that I, thing's great. I prefer the sugar. I actually like the sugar cone. I like, I like the sugar cone that's got the, 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 the cooked waffle with the sugar coning yep. and that's actually my favorite one if so. i go to dairy queen though because they don't have waffle cones they have the wafer ones but then like the dairy cream like it like it melts into the bottom yeah, we have part, now like gone way afar we are done with this i am playing the role of bob last thing if you uh like listening to us talk about stuff me and jerry also have a show called coffee flavored horror if you like horror movies we generally break down the good the bad the cheesy and the horrifying check that out those episodes usually are only about 30 to 40 minutes long all right can there be ice cream later uh after we go to the garage Access granted. Traits are the building blocks of Cortex games. We build our dice pools from them. The fiction created at the table is influenced and funneled through them. They're the most prime of Cortex Prime. In the core of Cortex section of the Cortex Prime book, the first thing you're told to do is to write down your character's name and one central thing they're good at. This is their trait. You can't have a Cortex Prime game without traits. Before we define our terms, I just want to say we're going to talk about and reference other Cortex mechanics during this discussion. We may or may not take a moment to go over them. If you listen to our Children of the Shroud games, which there's a bunch of them now, you will get the gist of how these other parts of the game work, but this discussion is going to be focused on traits. So now let's define our terms. What is a trait? A trait is a descriptive label with a die rating attached. A descriptive label is a word or phrase that tells you what the trait is doing in play. The die rating is a die type or set of dice that let the players know how much impact the trait has on the game. A d4 being a weak trait and a d12 being a very impactful trait. Here's two examples to help clarify. From the character sheet point of view, let's talk about Geek D10. Geek informs us how much mental acuity, mundane recall, and observation a character has. A D10 rating means the character is very intelligent, but not at the highest level of intelligence one could be. Now let's talk about a trait from the table point of view. Uh, Let's talk about Strain in the Shroud D8. Strain in the Shroud informs us how much the Shroud has been strained. We have it in our game pretty often. 
And we know that if it goes beyond D12, it's going to be a problem for those of us who work within the Veil's rules. A D8 rating means that there's been some pushing on the Shroud, and whatever is causing that pushing should stop until the Shroud recovers, but we're not really in dire straits yet. Now that we've defined our terms, let's get into the description of types of traits. So there are a lot of different types of traits in Cortex Prime games. These include, but are not limited to, attributes, distinctions, skills, affiliations, relationships, powers, roles, and values. That's a whole bunch, let me tell you. I want to focus in now on trait sets. Trait sets are any collection of traits that belong to the same basic type. You can only add one trait from a trait set to a die pool without added cost. This added cost varies from game to game, but it is often a plot point. Attributes, relationships, powers, roles, skills, and values are a few kinds of trait sets, but you can make up whatever kind of sets you want, especially to fit them for your game. In our Children of the Shroud game, we have roles defined as emo, geek, jock, performer, and popular. Uh, I talked about geek earlier, that's mental acuity, mundane recall, and observation, but the other four, jock, physical activities and actions, popular, your connections, the power of your social network and social currency, emo, which is the weird fringe knowledge and understanding, uh, your feelings and empathy, and then there's performer, which are social skills, lying, acting, performing, that kind of stuff. Taking that a step further, this trait set in our game influences how you interact with these cliques in high school. It's kind of performing double duty, which is why we built it that way. We are also using relationships, affiliations, and distinctions as trait sets. We'll probably talk about them a little bit more later and how they're functioning in our game, but I want to talk right now about the universal trait set, Distinctions. Distinctions, I, I want to paraphrase from the Cortex Prime book. They're sort of like your character's elevator pitch. If you read all of someone's distinctions, they should tell you a lot about that person's character. They can describe the character's personality, quirks, their role in the world, how they see themselves, really any number of things, but they do a lot of work to give you as a player touchstones to help bring that character to life through play. According to Cam Banks, the designer of Cortex Prime, every Cortex Prime game has distinctions. You can mess with or modify any of the other traits and trait sets, but the game was designed with distinctions as a cornerstone of the experience. All right, let's talk about our Children of the Shroud game real quick. So we have Henry Gunny Gunderson, that's Bob's character. He has these distinctions. I can't disappoint my mom, sins of the father, and a leaf on the wind. So what does this tell us about Bob's character? First, he has a strong relationship with his mother and doesn't want to let her down for some reason. We're not quite sure what that means until play starts and that comes up in the story, but at least we have an idea of that. We also know that his father has done something wrong that is probably passed down onto him. That's the sins of the father. And Leaf on the Wind means he's probably quite quick and has some kind of air magic if you look at our setting of magical high school swashbuckling adventure and drama. The last thing to mention is that each of these distinctions is rated at a D8, which makes them useful, but not overpowering. It's, I like putting D8s in my dice bowl. It feels good. Now let's move on to temporary traits. So these are traits which last for a short time, like a scene or a session. They often go away when they're no longer relevant to a situation, and I believe that the uh, temporary trait is the Swiss Army Knife of Cortex Prime games. So these temporary traits, they, they sit on the table, and assets and complications are the most common examples of temporary traits. They come up a lot, so let's get into them. Assets. 
They get included in a die pool when they're applicable and helpful. And there are three ways to create them. You can spend a resource called a plot point to create a D6 asset for the scene. There are certain abilities called SFX, which allow for the creation of D8 assets. These are referred to as stunts. They are often on your character sheets. And you can also take an action to make an asset by rolling against a difficulty. Now, there are some rules surrounding this, which we're not going to get into right now. But in a future primer, we will. Now let's talk about complications. Complications are traits that go into the opposing die pool to make it harder to succeed. Makes sense. This works for both player characters and GMPCs. Before we can talk more about complications, we need to talk about hitches. A hitch is when the players roll dice and one or more of them come up as ones. When a one is rolled, the GM can buy it from the players for a plot point. Now, I've mentioned plot points a few times, but let's talk about it a little bit more. These are the core currency of Cortex Prime games. There's an economy in the game where plot points will flow back and forth between players and Game Master. The Game Master, depending on the game, could have an infinite amount of plot points to then pay for hitches and such, while the players have a variety of ways to acquire plot points so that they can spend them to help them succeed at things. In a future Cortex Primer, we will do a deeper dive into plot points. But hitches and rolling them is one of the ways to get them as players. Once that plot point is paid to the player, a complication is created. Complications will go away as the fiction dictates, but if they're a little more sticky, like say a gunshot wound, they can be dealt with by making a test to get rid of them. Uh, a test is what you would consider a check in other games. You probably need some fictional positioning also to get rid of your gunshot wound. Like if you don't have somebody that can stitch up a gunshot wound, it's not going away. Aside from assets and complications, there is the potential for other floating traits that just exist in a scene that can either assist or hinder the players. They can also just be traits that sit in the scene that have the opportunity to be interacted with, but don't really hinder or help the characters to begin with. For instance, say there's a chandelier sitting in the middle of the room at D8. Well, there's a chandelier at D8 just sitting out there. Until someone swings off that chandelier or does something with that chandelier, we don't include it in any die pool. It's not hindering, it's not helping, but as soon as somebody wants to use it as part of their fiction, then it becomes relevant. Alright, well, that's all the basic information about traits. Now we're going to talk with the rest of the MMP crew and get a little deeper inside ways that you can use this information inside of a Cortex Prime game. But first, let's talk about another show from Misdirected Mark Productions. Pandas Talking Games is where uh, me and Senda get together to uh, help people play more better games. So you send in a topic, a question, something you need uh, advice, help, or you know want to apply our experience to, and we show you how to make it work better in your game so that you have more fun and you game more often and you stay in this hobby for a longer time. Awesome. I actually like the bamboo. I think... That you guys also eat your set like every week because it's made of bamboo. Fall out of trees, roll down uh -huh. hills, like 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 good pandas. All right. Now that you've heard the primer part where I told you all about Cortex tests and contests in brief, we're going to move on to the round table where we dive deeper into it. So let's do some questions and potentially some answers that make some amount of sense. So let's talk about tests. We've played a lot of Cortex at this point. Tests feel pretty straightforward to me, but I am just one person. What questions, thoughts, ideas, or confusion do you have about tests when it comes to Cortex? Jerry. Thoughts? I like how we handle disasters in Ox because they're a test and kind of a mob. And the way they're put together is that there's generally a number of tests that have to be, def that have to be overcome 
either in a row or sometimes in sequence. And failing them does have consequences, but you can attack them from different ways. And so as a result, we know what we have to roll over. We know what the difficulty is. How we tackle it comes from the players themselves. Sometimes you have to succeed at one set of tests and remove one whole stack from the table. So there might be, say, um, an earthquake on the table. And the earthquake might have 3D8s. We have to get do tests to remove those 3D8s to remove that earthquake. And if we don't do it in a certain amount of time, then those dice will be rolled and successes from them or failures from our rolls will do the next thing, which is the tsunami that the earthquakes are causing. And so they, may, they can often be multiple things that have to be attacked. We can also attack the tsunami itself, but that won't stop if we don't stop the earthquake. Yeah, I mean, we've, so, we've talked about this a little bit. We, yeah. I haven't in any, either the primers talked about the idea of the timer. The time, the time, oh, time, yeah, test? time test. That's, I love it's great. We'll, we'll do a whole thing on it at some point. Yeah. Time test is a time test is a fantastic tool. It's so good that I'm already working on a version of it so that I could do it in cyberpunk. You know, we don't have a lot of in our ox game. We don't have a ton of contests. It's not a contest game. No, once in a blue moon, like when, when you guys, uh, when you guys were on trial, that was a contest. We did those as contests, but a lot of times we don't use contests in ox. Use context more in Children of the Shroud. I use them. Uh, I would say I use tests more than contests in Long Live the Queen as well. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. This is the base thing, right? Yeah. Also, yeah. contests from the primer, everybody like they're initiated. They're supposed to mostly be initiated by players. Yeah, because the player wants something, and there's something opposing them. Yeah, like there's something interesting about it. Like let's roll off. Mm -hmm. Like where, would... whereas the tests in Ox, the the crisis pools and the disasters are always things that are put in front of us first. Yeah, but they're things you want, as yep. in, I would like this fire king to stop. Sure. No, but I think that's why I said <laughs> yeah, they're, but, but that's why they're tests, not contests, because, not not the only reason why. Go ahead. The, the guys don't listen to the thing that I record usually beforehand, but in, in the text of Cortex, it says, a test is usually like, the GM presents a thing and says, what do you do? Mm -hmm. The contests are like, the player goes and tries to accomplish a thing, and something gets in the way of it. Yeah, and usually the thing is, like with a test, there can be more tests, right? So mm -hmm. like in terms of the fire cane or any one of the other things that you guys are trying to attack in mm -hmm. Ox, there's test and then you could do something else. In a contest, it's a little more definitive. At the end of the contest, somebody wins, mm -hmm. somebody loses. Yes. And so for the court cases, it was a nice way to kind of sum up basically a volley, an exchange that like, okay, we're going back and forth. These are two legal entities, right? Two lawyers. They're going to duke it out to see who's going to win the verdict. Yeah. And it was interesting because it wasn't a high stakes test. It was a low stakes or not a contest. Sorry. It was a high stakes. It was a low stakes contest, not a high stakes contest. Correct. Because nobody got taken out. Correct. No. But whether you were going to get what you wanted narratively, you had to kind of handle through that. Yeah. Actually, that's a very good example because I, I think we stated as a crew, like, we want to emancipate Ox. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do a thing, therefore a contest occurred. Yep. Yeah. It is not a hard and fast fast rule, right? Like I said, like the, these lines get blurry as you start oh, adding mm -hmm. mods and mess around with the game system. It's not even just that. I could have, depending on how we wanted it to play out in the game, like I could have said to you, like, okay, cool. Uh, I want you to, you know, like you have to make a legal brief, so make a test. And then, you know, like I could have had you make like a test here, a test there, like that kind of thing. And we could have gotten to the same we could have. goal. But because the thing we were trying to emulate in the game was an actual court case, like a court battle. And there are a 
binary, there's binary outcome, right? Like either get the thing you want or don't get the thing you want. The contest was like a really good tool, like a good mechanic to use to get that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's when you say the line blurs, absolutely. Like, could I have done it without a contest? Yes. But did it look better and feel like, did it feel more, (laughs) did it feel more right? Well, doing it as a contest? The thing, that I, the thing that I said earlier is eventually this just blurs down to what feels best for the narrative yeah, exactly. that you're trying to put out there. Mm-hmm. And tests are like quick and dirty Some in some cases. Like how do you get to the thing? How do you overcome the thing you're trying to overcome? Whereas contests are more about do you want this back and forth? Also, do you have two sides that are opposing each other in some way, shape, or form? So the thing I like in Ox is that because those two are baked into the, I'm sure as you talked about, baked into the core of the game. You have those as an option at all times as a GM. Like as a GM, when I am running the game, when presented with a time to pick up dice, I can say like, oh, I want this to be a test or I want this to be a contest. And depending on where we are in the story and what we're doing, I can choose differently. Like, for instance, let's say you're infiltrating a building Mm -hmm. in a spy game, right? Yep. I could just have you make a test. You could. And could have you make a couple tests along the way. Or if I'm not interested in the infiltration part of this and I really want to move the story uh, along to what happens, like, do you get in? If you know, Do you get in or do you not get in? I could make it a contest. Like, oh, you play a cat and mouse game with the guards, you know, through this. We're going to just do this as one contest. Or if you want to just take that, uh, take that scale up even even larger step, the building and the security of the building is the thing that you're actually rolling against for the contest. Yeah, absolutely. So like my goal is to sneak in, steal information and get out. My contest is that versus me versus the building. Yeah. So if I want, so if I want to make it, if I want to slow the game down, I could turn it into a bunch of tests, right? Very traditional kind of make skill checks kind of tests. Mm -hmm. If I'm not interested, like let's say going back to that thing, like getting the information out of this building is actually just a piece of a much larger story we're telling by making it the contest. We can be like, Oh yeah. After a back and forth. Oh yeah. You totally outwit the building. You, you win the contest. You, you know, you come out with the, uh, information needed. Yeah. And we just did that as like one exchange instead of maybe like two hours of us sneaking down hallways, making skill checks, lock pick checks and things like that. So it's, it's cool. It allows you to kind of dial where you want to like dial in and when you want to kind of abstract back to me it actually creates a bit of confusion in the rules sure we've played enough sessions now where it's like when do you use a test when you use a contest and i'm like whenever you want to at this point mm-hmm. fair so that's actually problematic i think for the rule book yeah the rule book the rule book gives a little bit of description well, that's why i said the rule book is exactly what i stated yeah. tests are the game master presents a thing in front of you. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Contests are, I want to do X. Yeah. And then it's supposed to be a contest. That's actually the delineation of the rule book. But never, we've never played the game that way. It's never felt wrong. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. So, I mean, to me, that that's weird, right? Like, it, Cortex is essentially supposed to be a player-facing game for the most part. Yes. Like, the rules actually state that it's yes. supposed to be player-facing. I think the other thing that's interesting, and I don't want to dilute our topic, but there is also things like, do I need an effect die? Do I not need an effect die? Because Oh, I talked about that too, because effect dice are very important in in certain cases when it comes to contests. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like 
well, I mean, well, we should well, let's talk about that for a second. Another thing sure. that can be mm-hmm. a little bit confusing, um, and we'll talk about it more as we get deeper in there. But the effect die is optional, depending on what kind of mods that you have in your game. It's a mod, right? Like it's it's not a mod, but it is a mod. Yes, I mean, I love it, though I like it in the game, and I like to use it. But there are times, and I try to do, I try to be very clear about this before you guys pick up dice and build pools. Whether I need a result and an effect die or whether I just need a result, uh, I will even state to you that heroic results will, you know, have extra trappings, that kind of thing. Like, I try to be very upfront with you guys. Like, And we are talking more about tests right now. The effect die is less important for tests for the base game of Cortex. Sure. When you get into all the mods, like our our uh, disaster pools, as we're calling them, for Ox, yeah. mm-hmm. the effect die matters a lot more because it knocks dice out of pools. Yes. yes. Which is a thing you want to be doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But in the base game of Cortex, it just is going to either create assets on the table, in some cases, or complications, mm-hmm. or it will give you scope of success. Yeah. Like a D4 is a minor success, a D12 is a huge success. We also have in one of our kind of, in our homebrew mods, our genius test, the effect die is a carryover. Yeah. So if you're of your two tests that you have to do for your genius test, mm-hmm. if your first your first one, the effect die carries into your next pool. Yep. Or if you mess it up, it carries into the opposition's pool, making yeah. it harder for you to do the thing. Right. That's like a that's a momentum mechanic. Yeah, it is a momentum mechanic. I guess what I like, I don't know. This part probably will drive you crazy when I say this. The messiness or grayness of some of these rules, I like because. At the table, sometimes, like so, like when I'm prepping things, a lot of times I will prep out like this is a test or this is going to be a contest. But when the ad hoc stuff comes up, I like that I have kind of a little bit of a palette of, of things I can pick from in that moment and be like, yeah, I think I want this to be a contest. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to count it as a feature, not a bug it, of this game. It doesn't drive me it doesn't drive me up a wall or anything like that. No, but I know you like, I mean, I know you like good mechanics. Like, no, I, I like, I like good tools that make sense. Well, then I feel like we're on the same page yeah. on this thing. Yeah. For, I mean, too, I'm going to deviate for a hot second just to defend my, my position about sure. tools in public access, the day night move. Mm-hmm. Those are tools. Like I can mm-hmm. use the day move at night. I can use the night move during the day, depending on situation. And, and yeah. you have. Yeah. So it's just about feel. So in Cortex, the kind of test that I want to use or contest that I want to use, it's all about feel. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think using the day move at night in public access is saying this is not as high stakes. Correct. Like this is, oh, that thing you want to do, it's important and we should get a, we should get an outcome, but I'm probably not going to kill you if you get this wrong. Let's move on. So we talked a little bit about tests that we thought were interesting. I want to, I want to maybe hit a few more examples there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jerry, what are some tests or series of tests that stick out as being particularly memorable and why? Okay, the one I just mentioned was the test for the earthquake slash fire slash tsunami that was the big crisis in Ox, where we came back to the planet, there was an interspace anomaly that was causing all sorts of gravitational issues and creating a multitude of crises on the table, probably the most disaster crises we'd faced so far, where we had the actual gravitational anomaly itself which was causing three other crises that were like an earthquake and a volcano erupting and something else. And that led to tsunamis and hurricanes that were going to be overwhelming the populace. And so the four heroes had to put their geniuses together and come up with ways to 
stop the actual damaging effects, which were going to be the tsunami and the fire cane, but also go back and stop the causes. And so we had to split ourselves up and attack the various crises separately. So there were tests against different dice pools to eliminate the dice. And when we failed, those would accelerate both those dice pools and the dice pools beneath them. It just made for a tense game. That was a lot of fun. The cascading mobs meant that what we were doing had real effects, but that we could actually do different tactics to stop all the crises that were going on. And it was just a lot of fun because it was a chance to use multiple tests and it felt like what we were doing was, was having an effect, but also we had different ways of trying stuff and we could work with each other to create assets on the table and slow down certain effects and so on. It was just a lot of fun. It was, it was a memorable set of tests and probably the one I remember the most. When he said, put your geniuses together, I'm just like, we form Voltron. Yes. Genius Voltron. Yes. Genius Voltron. <clears throat> I mean, if only that was a real thing. Let's face it, we're more like Captain Planet than Voltron, unfortunately. I mean, whatever. We defend the world or the galaxy. We do, we do. <laughs> Captain Planet's okay. Yeah, uh -huh. Captain Planet's fine. Yeah. Only unless it's the Rick and Morty version. Yeah. It's just tests, right? We, the whole thing is just tests. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea, I mean, the idea behind it, I think looks good is like, I put out a bunch of these things on the table. There's dice all over the table and it's like, okay, here's a whole bunch of problems. And on top of that, these are all time tests, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. There's some like shit that's going to happen in eight beats, 10 beats, something with some signs and portents. If we're going to go back and use some dungeon world terms, there's some signs and portents during it. Like, oh, you're four beats in like the, you know, tsunami wave is rising, you know, that kind of thing. And because they were time tested, it was interesting because when you did get a critical success, what do they call those again? Heroic. Heroic success. Which is when you succeed by five. You were heard it earlier, folks. The choice was, do we drop down more dice or do we do something without eating up time? Yes. And that, that gave us a choice. And well, first of all, we all know how much Chris loves difficult choices, but it worked really well because it made for when you did really well, what else could you do? Yeah. And multiple heroic successes made a bigger difference because you can, in some tests, succeed by five more and five more and five more, especially when Bob is playing. Just bumps the die up. Yep. And that made a huge difference in what we could do. It's just tests. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was just tests. And it does highlight the idea behind the test, which is, here's a bunch of problems. What do you do? Yeah. It sits right in the groove of what Cortex is trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th and I think Ox, I think in general, Ox sits nicely right in what Cortex is trying to do. Especially the test side of it. Yeah. Like yeah. The game is so heavily dependent on tests. Mm -hmm. uh, what about your crisis pool, your custom crisis pool? Yeah, you know, it's funny because we use crisis pools. I, we probably- They're not crisis they're pools. They're not crisis pools. We, 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 I call them disaster mobs. Yeah, I like, I mean, disaster mob is now my new favorite band name. For, right? for it, isn't it like Vent Magnetic's like third album or yeah, something? Yeah, they like opened that? for oh, Vent they, Magnetic oh, oh, in 98. Oh, yeah, yeah, disaster, disaster, disaster mob. Disaster mob. So this one- what this is, is a couple, we didn't even start with this. It was only like a handful of sessions ago. I had this uh, busted up piece of machinery and I wanted you guys to fix it. But I was like, I could have just made a pool, right? Through, I could have just thrown like 3D8 down and been like, uh, this machine's busted. Like knock off all these dice and you fix the machine. And then I was like, you know, it'd be more interesting if like one, certain parts of the machine are easier to fix than others. So I don't want to do all one die. I want to do like a mess of dice. But wouldn't it even be cooler if each die corresponded to a function of this thing? And then when you resolve that particular die, you discover a particular thing or, or fix a particular thing in the narrative. And so we put together this pool 
and I, we just used it recently in a in a uh, in our current game to fix up an old ship. Like I told you, like okay, this ship is kind of busted. Here's the problems with it, and Bob's been working on it with his brother. And as they knock off dice, it's like okay, well, propulsion is restored, and now uh, the hull's still damaged, but you've repaired some of the hull damage. Right, that die's getting smaller, kind of thing. I like that because it lets a, it lets me do a thing that I couldn't do before, and it's a thing that if I had known, I would have put it back in the beginning of the game as a custom mod because it's kind of a cool way to be like, not only are you fixing a thing, but we can talk about intermediate successes. Where mm-hmm. normally, like with the fire cane, it's like, well, this fire cane's three d eight, now it's two d eight. So narratively, yes, it's a smaller fire cane. Which is fine for the Fire King because it's kind of homogenous, but for something like a machine, it was cooler to be able to say like, oh, well, the drive on this thing's really jacked. That's a D12 yeah. Yeah. damage. There is a episode in the future that we are going to do where we talk about some of our, our custom mods and how we design them, how we can use them in other ways and for other games. Because mm-hmm. I just had an interesting thought about this whole idea instead of having like one crisis pool and it spawns off of the Fire King that the Fire King situation that Jerry was talking about. There is a machine that is like four traits on the table and each of those traits has its own, I mean, disaster mob or whatever, yeah, you, yep. like broke, like repair mob on it. Yep. And you have to fix the thing before the bad thing happens. That's the start. That's another Star Trek episode. Yeah. Fix your ship before the bad thing happens to you. Yeah. yeah. And I've had, um, I've had things where you guys have just outmaneuvered the game where some of the countdowns towards the end will be like, put an extra D6 on all the existing traits on the table. Oh yeah. See, that's great. Right. Like, like. You've, you, you've, there was one, oh, I know what it was when you guys were, when you went, guys, this is Ox, when you guys went to visit the Talmarans and there was that terrorist attack. Yeah. So there was a thing that if, if you had not resolved the main problems, when the countdown clock hit a certain beat, then all the structural damage was going to get an extra D six that turn because it was like, well, you haven't capped the plasma conduit. It's now, you know, made the building fire worse. It's made the street worse, that kind of thing. So those are cool. Like, that's just shit you can just mess with. And I get, like you said, we'll talk about time tests later because time tests, I think, is like one of the secret. That is a, that is a later that's episode. A, yeah. That's yeah. a secret sauce kind yeah. of thing for yeah. this game. Let's move on to uh, mods that you prefer or dislike when it comes to tests. Maybe, maybe not take so much time with this one since we've talked a lot already. Jerry? I like the crisis bulls or the, the danger mobs or the whatever. Disaster mobs. <laughs> yeah, disaster mobs. Yeah. What about you, Phil? There is a mod in the rulebook where you can, and I think this is a throwback to the original uh, Firefly game, where you can just have difficulty numbers. Yes. I hate it. I love, as a GM, That's fair. I love rolling dice for Cortex. Like, I, if, like, yes, could I just be like, oh, this is a DC9 and have you guys roll to beat it? Sure. But what I really like is I like throwing down some dice. Especially because I'm good at it in this game. <laughs> well, well, it's it's also fun when something challenging does happen, like in Children of the Shroud when uh, the angel fuckboy showed up yes. and, you know, should have definitely rolled right over us and you rolled like a five or a six as a difficulty and we were able to change the, the feel of that scene. If you had just said, well, this is difficulty 13. Um, that would have been it for us. And and there's a thing to be said when I'm rolling dice, like sometimes, sure, you guys have all heard it on the mic. Sometimes I roll dice and sometimes it's just like, it, it's a statistically high night, but there is also a really cool feeling. I think for you guys, sometimes I roll dice and if you get a one or a two, it dramatically kills that pool on a 3d8 pool. If I roll one, like one, one, 
that die is out. It's now a 2d8 pool, and like a lot of times, that's like it can create a like a big advantage for you guys, like rolling against it. That's why I always say, if you're going to roll a pool, try to roll five dice. Well, it also it also changes what happens when you are doing the disaster the disaster mobs because as you eliminate some of those dice, and when you're rolling, there was one disaster you had that was three d10. That's pretty dangerous. Yeah. But once we knocked out that first d10, that changed the entire feel of just how dangerous that thing was. You could still roll a twenty on that, but you were more likely to roll ten or eleven. Yeah, and and I think that's kind of cool because it makes those mobs initially intimidating, but once you kind of knock a die off of it or something, like momentum starts to pick up on them. Yeah. I just like the idea that you don't like target numbers, but I could be like, cool, I'm going to have a target number for my mooks that is just static with a static effect die, and then I can roll for the more challenging or important characters just just as like a way to differentiate the different types of characters but that's me right no that's cool right like that's a and and actually that's a kind of smart way to do it like these don't matter as much i don't really need to roll for these guys the target numbers are like eight and they have all d6 effects when they when when you essentially are upsetting i I could actually get behind that kind of mob like that mod like if you were if if you were putting a cortex game together and you were you said that i would be like yeah that's fine that that makes sense to me yeah and instead of rolling i would just stick all the d6s on the on the board like this is the mob yeah just Mm -hmm. beat down on it Uh yeah all right uh let's move on to contests so Mm -hmm. contests come in high stakes and low stakes versions uh let's talk about what are some of the high stakes contests that we have and what made them high stakes phil Sure, dueling. Yeah, dueling is always yeah. high stakes. I don't know if we've had any other ones, really. Not an ox, because we have low stakes. We've had low stakes ones yeah. in ox. I'm trying to think if uh, I've ever had one in Long Live the Queen, either. No, because I never had one where anyone got completely taken out. But have you had ones where people could have been taken out? So the closest I got was I had one, uh, I had a contest, I think it was uh, in Long Live the Queen, where Santa was trying to escape a castle in England that was being overrun by Scottish rebels, trying to get the queen out. That sounds pretty high stakes. Yes. And she got the queen out, but failed the last roll and got um, caught by the Scottish rebels and had to like descend into a fight uh, in order to um, uh, get her way out and onto the uh, jet to flee. That's cool. So that's pretty cool. It was like a cat and mouse game through like the castle kind of thing. And if she would have gotten caught, that would have been bad. It would have been bad for the bad guys too. She's pretty adept spy. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she actually has some, I think she actually has a uh, talent that kicks in when she gets captured. Okay. So that's interesting because, oh, oh, when she gets captured, she has a talent. That's different. Yeah. Because usually when you get taken out, taken out, the that's out, right? Yeah. When you get taken out, the game master gets to decide or the winner gets to decide what happens. Oh yeah. I would have been like, I would have like, imprisoned. Well, I would have imprisoned her, right? Like I would have walked off with her, but she's as deadly imprisoned as she is on the loose. So it's a very James Bondy kind of. So we've talked about one of our low stakes contests. That was the, the ox trial trial, but we've had other ones, especially in our, in our uh, children of the trial game, uh, mm-hmm. the, oh, academic decathlon, yeah. the academic decathlon, the knowledge bowl, yes. the knowledge bowl. And they were low stakes because a thing happened, but yeah. it didn't like take anybody out. There wasn't like a, a consequence that just changed everything dramatically. Yeah, exactly. And I, and again, it's the kind of thing that thematically f- feels right in play mm-hmm. like this is the decathlon like you're going up against somebody winner takes all kind of thing uh we also had it in the uh early the, one of the first sessions when me and silas and lisa were having the question off to see who got to go to the the extra session yes more, the ac- as jerry would say why are we competing to do more schoolwork yes <laughs> yes so would my character say the same thing yeah <laughs> yeah and, and and for me that's like a fun way where 
So it's like a juxtaposition, right? The more exciting thing in this campaign is always the magic stuff. But by putting contests into the mundane part... Until it's not. Right. But putting (laughs) contests into the mundane part makes the mundane part a little more exciting at times. So I... Like, I like messing with that in terms of like, oh, no, no, like there's a contest. Like somebody has to beat somebody here for being captain, being first, bragging rights, the uh, extra credit thing, that kind of thing. And that's what makes it low stakes is that the stakes are not very high. There's not a severe consequence that the game master is going to levy on you. In fact, there was a reward for whoever won. Yeah. If anything, it's kind of funny because it's using a um, mechanic that produce they can produce high stakes Mm -hmm. stuff but using it for that low stakes kind of it it works both ways it's interesting because contests are all about stakes yeah and if the stakes are like i'm going to make something terrible happen to you yeah or i'm going to choose how things play out for you then it's a much higher stakes situation especially the taken out part is the thing which is like i can kill your character yeah yeah which which gets us into i think in a minute we're going to get into dueling because That was a thing that feels like it should be a contest. To deviate for a second, we're going to move into dueling right now. I sure. think that's a great idea. Whenever you have stress that is a potential thing that you can take, everything becomes a high stakes contest. Yes. As soon as stress is on the table as a take, then it's high stakes because you can't be taken out from losing a contest, but you can be assessed stress. Yes. And the thing I think I like about contests and dueling, right, if we're talking about our dueling mod. Before you get into it, why don't we talk about what we do? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Sorry. So how do we do dueling? Dueling is a bit different from what a contest is described as in the game. Not, not completely different, but just a, there's a couple of modifications. For instance, in Cortex, a contest is initiated by the person that initiates the contest. So if the, it's usually initiated by player characters and they get to set. That's how that works. We don't do that. Correct. We roll off. We have an initiative role for that. So that's a little bit different. Then we use the standard back and forth of the contest as presented in the Cortex rules with, you know, generating mana. We have mana in our game. So you generate mana every time you roll the dice. With along with that, everything's pretty much the same. Yeah. I mean, the contest is a core component of that mod. Yeah. And I really like it because, and again, Jerry took fencing in college, so I'm going to say movie fencing. To me, it has this real feel of movie fencing where there's this exchange of kind of back and forth and then there's like an actual strike that lands, right? So unlike, and to me, this has been my problem with swashbuckling in a lot of different games is that if you're just making attack rolls, it doesn't really feel like, like what you would see, say, in a Musketeers movie. True. And so what's really neat is when you do it as a contest, somebody sets, okay, are they going to hit? Nope, that person just beat it. Do they think that person can beat it? Cool. I'm going to try to beat, right? And it, boom, 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 hit. And it feels like that. And I like that. I like the way it comes out in play. What do you like about it? What's working for you, Jerry? It makes it feel like a different kind of encounter. Because we have contests in the game, but when a duel comes up, it changes the scope and changes the, like you said, the stakes of the game. It's, the really, it's really one of the few high stakes things we have going on most of the time. So as soon as a duel starts, something different is going on. Just like in a movie or TV show, where the duel starts, things have changed. And we're going to see something a little different happen. And I like that. It's a different sort of encounter. It's a different set of rules. And so I like the, what it does to the, to the story beats in the game. So let's talk about what's finicky 
about dueling because it there's a there's some some rules there right and there's mm-hmm. a, like a few things that we we tend to forget none of us are very good at it you're very good at it the rest of us are all mediocre i'm even going to be better at it now that i've studied how contests actually work <laughs> yes. Which, honestly we were doing it pretty much on par the only thing that we have that's any different is the mana generation i only get confused at the end i get sometimes confused about how to assess stress and is it less stress it's less stress if they if they surrender it's more stress if they don't like i just get confused about that that's the one part where i stumble and you guys always do a good job of kind of holding me up on that which is right there in the rules too man no no that's why usually i just keep it i keep the dock open Mm -hmm. so that i can just follow it i'm not even saying that's nothing against you i'm just saying it is kind of confusing like there's a bit of finickiness to that 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 resolution thing yeah like i just my my uh in-game because it's so hard to hold that thing clear in my head while I'm doing everything else is just to keep our rules doc open so that I can just at a glance, if I start to get confused, I can just click tab and be like, Oh yeah, no good. Okay. And just click back. What about you? It does slow things down, but I'm going to put with a caveat to that. It can slow things down. We're doing the duel. All of a sudden, whatever's going on is going to take some time. Part of it's just because we're all assembling dice pools and there's a lot of hesitation. We haven't done enough duels to make it streamlined. That being said, almost every duel we've done has also been a duel in the middle of something else happening. And I think the duels would seem more faster paced if it was just two people dueling. The majority of the duels we've done have been two people are dueling and then the other players are doing other stuff. So it's Chris does something, Jerry duels, Bob does something, Chris does something, Jerry steps out of the duel, Bob starts dueling. And so as a result, the duel doesn't feel as fast paced as it could. But I think that's more of the function of having multiple players. I think if it was just two people dueling, that's be a lot, that it would feel a lot faster. Yeah, so definitely to be clear, when I've set those up, I've done that on purpose. Like, if you go back to the one with Ike, right, there was um, the uh, Lancaster wizard. Brad? It was Brad. Brad. He had a mob with him, and then Ike also needed help. Now, I did that on purpose because I was like, okay, I need one. I want something for all of you to do. Two, I did think it would be fun if you could hand off and switch off pieces. Which it was. But you're 100% right. By doing that, uh, everything's longer. Especially because it's not just a combat turn. Sometimes it's a couple rolls to get to the resolution part of the duel. Yes. As opposed to the mob was a roll, the ceremony thing was a roll, but then the duel is like roll, 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 roll. resolve. Right. Like, yeah, it it definitely adds extra steps. And I just haven't done it because we could, because we're recording it, like we could do a duel and drop everybody else off for a second and just do the duel. Like, you know, Silas could duel a guy and we could just be like, you and Bob sit for a second. We're going to just roll this out and resolve it. I'm waiting for the time that we have to have three duels going on simultaneously. It's not actually not that hard. That is the scene I'm waiting for. I think that's where it suddenly becomes very swashbuckly. Sure, but it's also going to be pretty long. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, it should be probably a major sequence then yeah. in the game. I think, though, that we will get, I think it will speed up as we get better at doing the duels. Right now, there's a lot of, um, uh, I can't imagine what it's like Chris trying to edit that section. Of- it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. It, just, it sucks. I have most of those rules in my head so well now, it doesn't, I don't know, it's easy for me. But I've been, I wrote them and I edit our episodes, so I... <laughs> I'm getting like triple exposure and something. I just wrote this episode. So I'm, I'm yeah. getting like quadruple exposure to all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. When you immerse yourself in a thing, you just get better at it. Sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's fine. Like the, 
the contest rules to me are finicky anyways and then we added stuff onto them yes the thing that everybody always forgets is we generate mana every time we roll the dice yeah and that then one's... You get and then you get a mana die at the end of it yeah which if i was going to streamline it i would stop doing that and just be like cool end of the duel both people get a get a step up on their mana sure that makes sense it's not supposed to work it doesn't feel right but it probably will play better yeah, that makes sense. And maybe that mana die isn't a D6, it's a D8. Mm-hmm. So they can step something up that's higher, step something up or get a D8. Yeah. Sure. That makes. That's how I would streamline it. Anybody else have any ideas for how to streamline it, aside from doing it more? No, nope, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah, I am I think I'm okay. Like, I'm really okay with it. Like, it has parts, it is a little fiddly, but I really like, I really like the what it produces. So I, it, it doesn't bother, like, the reward outweighs the work on it. So I'm, I'm definitely pro- dueling it's very procedural in a lot of ways yeah oh the other thing that i don't like about it is it's really hard to use other kinds of magic while you're dueling we have not done a good job of figuring out how to do that in the uh, middle of i don't the think you're supposed to be able to no I, I guess you're right like you're locked in combat you can't really spin up a whole other thing the other thing because we have the ability to utilize magic that's what the mana die is for and we have attack and defense and whatever that other thing is whatever like we have control or enhancement oh. you can use those things while you're dueling because they don't take an action usually. It's usually spend a plot point or just add a mana die. You know, so be, we are using magic while we're dueling. It just doesn't feel like it. I don't know if it streamlines, but what might be cool is at the end of an exchange or of a duel, instead of, ju- instead of getting a mana die, you could just create an effect. There's, there's actually a rule in the thing for that. Damn it. Spend a plot point to create an, uh, create an asset on the table. Oh, no, no. Sure, you could do that. But I'm saying, like, forego the mana die and just be like, using my oh, mana I, die to like, create a I thing. won this exchange. Like, I create a ring of fire. Sure. Yeah, I'm with that. That sounds mm-hmm. cool. Right. You should do that. Maybe you should try that. Yeah, yeah, we can mess with it. If you win, you get to do that thing instead of Yeah, like, die. you get to express part of your magic. Yeah. Yeah. And put it on the table. As a D8, of, D8 asset. Sure, yeah. which will then greatly accelerate the dice pools because now assets start getting put on the table dice pools start to get a yep. little bigger and mm-hmm. chunky but I, but I would assume that they would have that they would only last for one exchange no the scene the scene okay. yes because it would function the same as any other asset that gets okay. created okay you know think of it like um you know think of it like a dragon ball z fight you know like all of a sudden you win so you get to create the asset using your magic i'm, I'm pretty sure most of the dragon ball z fights are still going on yes they they're mean- not they're they, over. They, we are, they, they make Final Fantasy fights looks looks look. We're quick. like in Super and like something else. I don't even like you guys. When you guys were watching Dragon Ball Z, if you ever watched it, it was like Z. Then it went to GT. Then it went to Super. Then it went to something else. Then it went to something else. Like, you need we're, like we're, twenty. We're so beyond you need like, that. You need like three episodes just to charge up. Right. right moving before. on to chases. Moving on chases. Chases. <laughs> you All right. Say. So we had a chase in our Children of the Shroud game. We did. There aren't any rules for chases. Contest. There are zero rules for chases. The contest. So there are rules for multiple people in a contest. Yes. Mm-hmm. We talked about, I talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. How do we feel about what we did for the chase Phil? I'm going to say that as a GM in the heat of the moment, right? I needed to do a thing. I wanted to put on the table and I really didn't want to open up a rule book. I think it was okay. I don't think it was perfect, but I think it was okay enough to cover what was happening in the moment. You weren't too far off from what it needed to be. Yeah. Because the way that multiple people in a contest work is everybody's supposed to roll. And then whoever gets highest is is in the lead. In this case, Samia was the one who rolled and set the difficulty. And then we all had to keep up. Made perfect sense. Yeah. The only thing that we probably didn't necessarily do right is uh, we all roll against it. If we fail, we're either out of the contest or we spend a plot point, take a complication, and then remain Try to, in the and contest. And then get back in. Yeah, because that's how the actual contest rules work. Yeah, and I think the way we did it was it wasn't a three-way contest, right? It was really a two-sided contest with 
and three eight, people on one side and one person on the other. An asymmetrical number of opponents, which was why I had Smia rolling as like any one of you beats this number, you are going to win the contest over Samia. But if you beat the other two of you, right, it doesn't really matter. If you think about it narratively, right, you're the three of you are running her down in a park. As long as one of you catches her, she can't escape. Mm hmm. Like I said, it seemed right to me. Like, it was close enough. It felt good, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it was, you know, in the moment, which that's, you know, that whole scene is, like, supercharged, right? You've got the duel going. Uh, you have the two of you arguing. Yeah. And then yeah. she's just like, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> right? She just, like, I, she wins the duel and she's like, I'm not sticking around, right? She just well, takes off. Oh, would you have changed anything? I know what I would have changed, but I'll let you go first. I don't know if I would have changed anything. I'm not, depending on how long the chase is supposed to go on for, I'm not super thrilled with the idea of every turn if you don't succeed you have to spend a plot point or you're out because a that's going to burn through your plot points real quick and if a chase goes on for multiple roles it's very easy for the person in the front to to get away and succeed yeah i, I disagree with that because you can get a plot point every round if you want by just using a d4 in your dipole yeah that's, that's true that's plot true point, plot points that's on true. plot points on you in fate in fate that I would, would be a pain that, rule. that yes. really would be dumb in fate. because it would yeah. be me having to try to get you plot points but in Cortex, every time you every time you make a roll, if you want a plot point, it's yours. Just take the D four. Also, what are the what's the consequence of you failing? Then that's what I'm not sure. That's, that's the, the consequence of you failing is spend a plot point to spend a plot point to stay in the thing. That doesn't mean you can't spend a plot point on your next turn to get back into it. Because all you have to have is narrative position to get back into a contest. Got it. Okay. And we had it because if somebody stops her, then we can get back into the contest. We don't even have to spend a plot point that at that sense. point. We can just get back into the contest. That's, that's actually about how the rules work. The only thing is that we would probably take some sort of D6 complication because mm -hmm. like we're winded or we're behind or we twisted our ankle or something like that. Yeah. Because that's that's how the contest rules for multiple people work. Well, I like the idea of a complication if you fail. And now it made more sense with the plot point. That makes more sense. That's why we talk about yeah. these. Not only just the plot point is for you to stay in it yourself. If you get taken out of the contest, then you just need narrative position to get back into it. Okay. So for instance, uh, Samia runs away. Yeah. We both fail. Gunny succeeds. Gunny corners her. Mm -hmm. We now have narrative positioning to get back into the scene, but we both have a D6 complication of some sort. Right. Makes that's, sense. That's how a chase probably should work in the future. If I was going to put one, if I was running a game and that's mm -hmm. what was going on, those are the mechanics that I would use because those are the mechanics that are presented in the game. Okay. And they sound like they make sense. They do. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the example I gave earlier in the thing is like, you get knocked out. Yeah. Like somebody takes you out by knocking you unconscious. Mm -hmm. Somebody has smelling salts. They walk over, they make their test, they whip the smelling salts under your nose. You're back in the fight. You didn't have to spend a plot point or anything like that. Ah, okay. But you have a D6 complication concussed. Okay. That is how the rules work. Makes sense. Uh, is there anything else that anybody would like to say about chases or tests or contests before we get out of here? No, I think I just need to make sure I'm clear on how we run it for asymmetrical two-sided contests. Like, just like if it was pretty much what we did, I want to just shore it up because I can't imagine there won't be another time you guys are going to chase somebody. <laughs> like, well, it depends on the yeah. chase too, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, it's the nice thing about having these tool sets. They actually are pretty flexible. Mm -hmm. Like the way that I, you were pretty close. We, we pretty much played the game the way that I just described it with a yeah. couple of like things missing, which were more generous from you actually. Yeah, and it just, you know, it's um, a completely different topic, right? But it's that in the middle of a game, just I'm a call it kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I, you know, also did that thing where I think I took both your ones or whatever and combined them into just creating a tension between the two of you. Yeah. Like those yeah, we've kinds done of, that before. 
those are the kind of things where I just play a little fast loose on the rules, but they feel right. I don't even know if it's fast and loose. It's just a shift. Yeah, but I mean, normally when you buy a one, um, you put down a complication on the table. In this case, I was like, I would like to give you both the same complication, mm-hmm. but I will also pay you because it now applies to both of you. Yeah, I actually don't see why that's even fast or loose. It just feels like it's right in the wheelhouse of what a Cortex eh, buy is, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm then I am also good with it. There's no rule for it. That's why. Correct. There's there's not a lot of rules for like what happens when I roll against Jerry and you're the game master. Right. What the fuck do I do? Correct. Like yes. there's nothing in the Cortex book about that. So yeah. anything we do is just in the spirit of whatever the rules say. Yeah, because if you roll against Jerry, I, you know, you guys don't buy ones. Correct. I uh, But I'll buy them. I mean, I could. I guess you could, yeah. I could spend a plot point to buy his one. Yeah, I have an unlimited amount for that purpose. Yeah. I have a limited amount for fucking around with my NPCs, but I have an unlimited if I buy off shit from you guys. All right, well, that's been our roundtable discussion about Cortex Primer tests and contests with a little bit more about chases and our dueling from Children of the Shroud. And we'll be back to talk to you next week. Enjoy. Thank you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon shots before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court. Ty Prunty, known as Lord Timemonger. Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time. Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. J.T. Evans, the Queen's Librarian. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies. Andy Olson, the Duke of Dice. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Craig, the Lord of One Name, Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Eric Bontz, the Were-Gator, and Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Other patrons include Chris Constantine, Miko Froilich, Eric Simon, Not That Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Huxley, Kathleen Halpern, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Becca-Sperm, Joseph Knoll, Carlos, Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Cubano, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, my Brett, not my Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting the show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com mmp. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud, that includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, then you can just tell a friend about us. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, there are a variety of shows on our network. You can check out Panda's Talking Games with Phil and Senda, where they talk about all kinds of game stuff. The Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to talk about gaming topics to avoid being thrown in the stew. And Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk all about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so why not record it? If that's still not enough content for you, we have a number of other podcasts that we recommend and are friends with. The Tabletop Bellhop, your board game concierge. The Knights of the Night, an excellent AP podcast. Mastering Dungeons, where they talk all about D&D if you want some more D&D stuff. And How to RPG with Sean P. Kelly. You can catch that on YouTube. He's live on Saturday mornings. I'm often in the chat room there. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.